You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Well, guys, welcome back. It's, it's, good, it's good to be back, isn't it? I, um, that, that first week we had off at the end of July, um, many of you went and served the young people of the Vineyard Movement and also young people from all over the country, from other streams and movements, uh, an event called DTI, Dreaming the Impossible. And I just wanted to say thank you because what a remarkable thing that is to do, to take time off work. To, For some of you, you bought tents, you got train tickets during a train strike and uh, you served and... S- Many of you actually, you served very, very hard. And um, the impact that will have made on people's lives will last for eternity. Honestly, 258 young people gave their lives to Jesus, 118 for the first time. So why would we not want to be part of that? And they send us a letter out very quickly afterwards, and it's literally just story after story after story after story of transformed lives, like literally pages of the thing. And as, as ever, I always think it's quite remarkable when you, you go and I guess do what Jesus said to do and what he modeled to us is you go as the servants and you do stuff to serve others. Stuff happened in the hands of the disciples. And I saw that with many of you, that you were shaped, you were encouraged, you were challenged and you were spurred on and you gave all you'd got to serve others. And uh, bookings are already open to be on team next year. I'd encourage you to be part of it, as is the similar thing for Course to Live for this November. If you've not heard about it, um, come along. Honestly, I'd, I'd invite all of you. It's the third weekend of November. Come and be part of something bigger and see what the Lord might want to do among us. But um, today I just want to start a new series called The Empowered Church. And some of you will need your understanding of church just slightly unpacking and slightly resetting and realigning. But all of us need to live with the mindset of being empowered. And uh, we don't just go to church, we want to be the church. And we want to do that well, and we want to do that with everything within us. Uh, But some of you will have quite pained view of church. I I definitely did in uh, a stage of my life. I read a book called um, Love Jesus, Hate Church. Uh, I really struggled with the the idea of church. The bottom line, though, is the church is Jesus's. And this is what he's coming back for. And he loves it. And he wants us to love the things that he loves. And so actually, we need to have a healthy separation from some of our previous unhelpful experiences that have caused us to carry wounds and carry scar tissues and how that then impacts our day-to-day lives and relationships. And actually, if I'm honest, this series is actually less about church. This is more about how we want to live as an empowered people. But I just want to acknowledge that we don't do that alone. We do that as a body. We do that as a family. And we do that as a church. And we can't be ashamed of this thing. We can't be half-hearted about this thing. Some of you will wrestle with what is your role, what is your part, what is your purpose and you need to know that you've been called you need to know that you're part of a body and you're part of a family on a mission it says this in 1 corinthians 4 verse 11 now these are the gifts christ gave to the church the apostles the prophets the evangelists the pastors and the teachers their responsibility is to equip god's people to do his work and to build up the church the body of christ 
This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. I don't know if you fully clocked in that passage. It says the responsibility is to equip the church. Whatever we've been given, we're to use it to equip others. And sometimes we get a little bit locked on the thing that we're doing or the thing that we think we carry but our responsibility actually is to give it away and it's to train others. There's often this very classic phrase that is used in the vineyard. It's not about you. You know, it isn't about you. It's about him. And what we have to do is we have to show and give him to others. We have to help them understand and to see him. And we want to live fully empowered that we would then be able to release others and live for others. What, what's the first thing that you think about when you think about the empowered church? Maybe this is just classic me, but the first thing I think of is, what does the disempowered church look like? So what I'm going to do to almost prepare a bit of the, the ground and the way for this series is just by start by looking at the next couple of weeks of what it is to be a disempowered church so that we can deal with some of the stuff that gets in the way. So uh, just a quick warning, particularly if you're new in the room or I realize for all of you we've been away for a little while, this is going to be slightly heavier than intended um, because I often worry that too many Christians, too many churches put up this really big red flag when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit because you will have had and you will have seen um, past excesses or sometimes something quite crazy attributed to the Holy Spirit. And many of you, as a result, have actually probably grown fairly cautious about embracing the work of the Holy Spirit because of it. Now, I'm not saying in any way that it's wrong to weigh or to reflect. I still have and I still do. And I've seen many things where I think, oh, no, 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 no. Goodness me, please, no. Equally, I do hold the conviction that God can powerfully and mercifully intervene in people's lives to bring healing and deliverance through the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit. And even if I was just to reflect on the last six months of this church, we've seen some remarkable things here. But our worldview will have a huge impact on this because our, our worldview determines what we think is reasonable and what to us would seem ludicrous. And it also describes the possibilities that we'll consider when reasoning through a situation or an event. Let me just give you a, a quick example. The, the guys are just going to chuck something up on the screen if I can. Just have a quick look at that. If you could uh, just take it down again, guys, that would be great. Right, I know we're very British, so you don't need to put your hands up. Just give me the... Give me the eye, and I will know. But how many, how many dots did you see? <laughs> okay. So give me the eye if, if more than 10. Okay. Okay, you're in for more than 10, most of you. What about less than 50? What about more than 50? Okay, more than 65? More than 73? Now, now be honest with yourself, more than 108? Okay, some of you are now wavering on whether or not you think there was more than 108. What about more than 132? What about 133? <laughs> Did you see that many? What might surprise you is if I say whatever number you have in your head that you saw is actually right. So 
you're all right. Because I said, how many can you see, not how many are there? Because I don't actually know how many there are, because I didn't count them. But <laughs> most, most, most of the time, our worldview is completely unconscious. But it will be different because every one of you sees from a slightly different angle. And because of the community aspect of worldview, most of our trends are actually shaped by culture. So how many of you started to doubt what you saw because the person next to you was thinking something slightly different? You could almost see a number of you thinking that way. Luke 11:34, Jesus said this, your eye is the lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light, but when it is bad, your body is filled with darkness. Jesus doesn't say what you look at is the light of your body. He says your eye is the light of your body. He's saying that your perspective will determine how much light you will see. See, it's possible to have God right in front of your face and not see him because your worldview doesn't allow him to be there. Luke 8 verse 9, his disciples asked him what the parable meant. He replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but I use parables to teach others so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they look, they won't really see. When they hear, they won't understand. You see, our ability to perceive God determines whether we'll see him everywhere, nowhere, or somewhere in between those two places. Jesus hears an audible voice from heaven. That's what he says. Do you know that one? Some of you will be familiar with that passage, John 12, verse 27. It says this, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven, saying, I have already brought glory to my name, and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to him. You see, God spoke audibly, some of the crowd heard it and interpreted it as thunder. Some of the others thought there was a voice of an angel. Jesus calls us to completely shift our thinking from the ways of the world towards the things of God. But our mindset, our perception, and our worldview will have a remarkable impact on that. Romans 12 verse 2, don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by transforming and changing the way you think then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And Paul's encouragement to us is to offer every part of ourselves to God. And as we do, as a result, our mind will be changed. It will be renewed. It will change your worldview, and it will help you to recognize and understand God's will and God's view. See, kingdom theology is the framework through which we would use in the vineyard for understanding the Bible. That's itself, in itself, is a worldview. The kingdom of God meaning the reign and rule of God, and it's the place where God's reign and rule is and where we see it extended. That's the, the place, I think, where we will be empowered and that's a place I want to empower you so why do I tell you all of that well because the place of disempowerment is the absolute complete reverse and opposite to all of that the last talk I did before the August break was about being on a war footing and I kind of thought that was a one-off talk but honestly I think all of this is actually linked because we often reduce the fact that we think we have an enemy to a little cartoon 
Have you ever done that? Your image of the devil is this little red guy with a pitchfork. But evil comes in person, a perverse Lord aiming to command our disloyalty to the true king. And the devil is purposeful, he's intelligent, and he's a wicked personal agent. And behind the web of deception spun by individuals and ideologies, a liar is at work. John 3, verse 19, I'm kind of not making this stuff up, you can read it for yourself, but behind the violence and the violation done by evildoers, whether individuals or institutions, a murderer is at work. So to not be disempowered, we have to be ready, and we have to understand what we're dealing with. To know how you can extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy, Ephesians 6, verse 16, of the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil, verse 12, that so often bombard your life. We have to understand what we're dealing with. So many of you are joining us for the first time and joining us online. I'm sorry, this is not light, but in I was speaking series. Don't honestly take this one out of context, otherwise you are right to be worried. But honestly, I, I, I know this is not like coming back week one, but this, this is the scriptures. As God's inspired, infallible revelation, the reality of a spiritual enemy who seeks to distort and disrupt us and disorientate us should not come under any suspicion. I think we read it, and we read it regularly in the Bible. But as we briefly look at being disempowered to prepare to be empowered, I just want to say my aim is not to stir up the fire of sensationalism or hyper-spirituality, but I hope to equip you for a battle in which you've actually been engaged for quite some time, whether you know it or not. And we'd call it spiritual warfare. Sirius Lewis so famously said this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is disbelief in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons, are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. Can I therefore just give you a quick overview of why I think we can be ignorant to spiritual warfare so that we can address that in our own worldview? I'm just going to give you really quickly 12 things to think about. Now, it's very unlikely all 12 are going to be relevant to you. So what you might want to do is just latch on to one or two, and then you can dig in and give it a bit of further thought. But the first one with this would be to be ignorant of the Bible. Ephesians 6, verse 12, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. I actually find it quite remarkable that a guy like Paul, an individual whose life seemed to be a constant battle against flesh and blood, the Pharisees, the angry mobs, the Roman authorities, the false apostles, the disloyal followers, and so on and so on and so on. Yet according to Paul, his war was ultimately not against them, but against the unseen demonic forces behind human opposition to the gospel. Our war is against those same unseen forces. Ignorance of that fact has, has significantly, I would say, contributed to people's unpreparedness. And we've got to continually come back to the scriptures, not to culture, 
to align our thinking and our experience. The second one is this, the belief that the Bible just isn't relevant. Now, I know to say that to many of you, you're like, well, of course it is. That's what we believe. But so often this gets watered down and eventually it almost gets stuck in the same category as the lockless monster. You know, some of it you would totally believe, but the stuff about the devil just becomes a little red guy with a pitchfork. It becomes a bit lighthearted. It becomes a bit jokey. It becomes like an imaginative concept. How can the Bible speak in truth into our highly advanced, technological, sophisticated world? And as we do that, and as we gently adopt that mindset, we start to reduce the authority of the scriptures. The third one is the victory of the cross. So many times I think we see this, people can be unprepared for spiritual warfare because they believe that since Jesus was victorious on the cross and it was so complete and so comprehensive, we actually only need to rest in the security of our position in Jesus rather than actually aggressively apply some of this truth on a daily basis in our lives. I want to say this, that simply being a Christian does not insulate you from demonic oppression. The flaming darts of the evil one, as Ephesians 6, verse 16 would say, would continue to target us and require a diligent resistance to them. We can't be naive about that. The fourth one would be a fear of imbalance. And honestly, I so many times have been guilty of this. I don't want to associate with a demon under every stone mentality. And I've seen that kind of thinking expressed and lived around people where it's just felt like an extreme excess that I sometimes would run so far the other way that it isn't balanced and it isn't measured because I've gone so far the other way. We can become so cynical of that that we try and live in the absence of it as a result. And I think some of you will have to think that through and what that means. And I guess it links to the fifth one, which is this, the fear of sensationalism. The kind of um, leads on from the previous point, but it's literally that fanatical excess that some of you will have seen and been, um, been around that you've seen exerted this unhealthy influence that has caused you to determine that you want to distance yourself from anything remotely supernatural. That behavior honestly should never cause us to turn a blind eye to the reality that something is opposing us. Can I encourage you to not allow bad previous experience to cause you to switch off from this. The sick thing would be this, it's an insulated lifestyle. For some of you, actually, just a lack of awareness of demonic forces does not, I would say, constitute proof of their non-existence or their lack of activity. It more likely points to the success of spiritual enemies actually in helping us be lured into this dangerous laziness that it's not really a reality. Because the reality is, it's all-encompassing, and it touches every area of our lives. The seventh is this, and I know this is quite an active debate, but it's that a Christian can't be demonized. I've spoken about that in depth before, so I won't go into it fully again. And whilst I don't believe that possession is possible. I do believe in demonization, and I prefer, actually, for it not to be a big deal. Even some of that can become a big deal for people, but often you want to tend to get stuff off people and out of people before they even realize it's there. We don't need to dramatize the language. They're just little cockroaches that honestly need stamping on. The eighth one is the fear of fanaticism. You know, this, this, is, this is a big one for some of you. Excesses and extremes will have caused you to want to run a mile. 
you'll have seen stuff on TV, you'll have been around stuff, you'll have heard stuff, you'll have lasting images of like almost a sweat-drenched face of people shouting and stamping, slapping and clapping, all of that. Sadly, some of those things, honestly, are so unhelpful, but they're particularly unhelpful to those that have become the genuine victim of spiritual oppression. The ninth compartmentalization. All of this stuff, like, in our minds just got gets um, lumped in and confide to it. It's Ouija boards, it's seances, it's tarot cards, it's all of that kind of stuff. Many of you may have been familiar with that when you were growing up, but I would say, also, honestly, I think that's exactly what the enemy wants us to believe. Because anything that's going to lower your spiritual defense is actually really welcome news to him. Some of you will work in environments that is shaping your cultural understanding of all of this. It's often subconscious and it can cause you just to dial it down. It's all a bit of fantasy. It's this little guy in red with a pitchfork. The tenth would be the Western worldview. You know, I know I've kind of mentioned worldviews a minute ago, but it, it's kind of a big deal. We often come with a, 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 like this mindset in, in the West that unless you can touch it, taste it, smell it, see it, or hear it, it probably doesn't exist. Well, actually, everything, at, you know, everything in my life and everything at some point can be described and explained away scientifically. The Bible's worldview is thoroughly supernatural. And I think we need to align with that. God controls the physical and natural laws. Psalm 103, verse 20, praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. Yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve him and do his will. Praise the Lord, everything he's created, everything in his kingdom. The kingdom of God is actively opposed. It can often be presented that you either accept this, this modern scientific view or you're slipping into being very gullible, uncritical. You have an acceptance of everything and anything. Honestly, it doesn't need to be that way. We can have a very healthy, balanced view. The 11th is this, a mission field mentality. I don't know if you found that, but I don't know if you've ever noticed, if ever you go on a mission trip, God always does more. And everybody seems to have a remarkable plane story. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of not knocking that because we've got plane stories ourselves. But I, I, I must have told you about the one with the old lady where I ended up hugging her and we're both screaming and all of that. But maybe I haven't. I'll tell you, that's for another day. But the, the, the problem is, like, we have this mission field mentality with spiritual warfare. We play it down. And we, we play it down as something that's not quite as relevant to the West. It's only relevant to, like, the mission field. They see it in different places and spaces. Have I got, I don't know, I'm trying to work out if I've got time to tell you the story. I don't think I have. Anyway, um, the 12th is this, the power of pride. Conversations around angels and demons, they're often off limits because of the spiritual stigma that many are willing to endure. You know, they're almost the secular, anti-supernatural mindset. The, the, that worldview, that is a thing. And I think we've got to be aware of it. I hope that's a helpful reflection for some of you just to latch on to a couple of those things because in a balanced and measured way, we do need to have an understanding of this stuff. How do you win a battle? You need to have an awareness of the enemy's tactics and strategy. Satan doesn't have a book out. If he did, I would highly recommend that you don't read it 
But honestly, he is in our book. And the Bible very clearly and repeatedly says stuff about him. Let's, let's just have a quick look at a couple of things. If I'm honest, the pri- precise nature of the enemy doesn't concern me. I don't want to this morning talk him up. I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested in Jesus. And I'm interested in you finding more of Jesus. But sometimes you've got to know how he works so that you can ensure that you're on your guard against him. Now, most of you will be being resisted at the minute. If, if you're living out your faith, many of the things that I've already mentioned will be at play. So let's just have a look at a couple of the, of the specifics. When we look at Genesis 3, a couple of things are going on in that garden that I think gives us a picture for how he works and further afield. So it says this, Genesis 3 verse 1, the servant was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. He openly makes out he knows more about the fruit than God has revealed. One of the first things he does, he challenges God's character and motives by telling Eve contrary to what God had said. Surely you won't die. He implies God is kind of, I don't know, like selfish or deceitful or even a combination of both. But the fact that the serpent approaches Eve points to his craftiness. Honestly, I've heard so many people say that, like, oh, it's because there was, like, a sexual component or it's because she was more vulnerable or whatever it might be. If I'm honest, I'm I'm not really sure about either of those. I think, and I would suggest, that it's because the servant directs his attack, at least as far as the biblical narrative is concerned, at the one who had not actually heard God give the instruction concerning the biblical fruit. It's kind of cunning, And it's actually cunning further still that rather than launching an all-out invitation into sin, what he asks on the surface appears to just be this innocent little question. Did God really say? Which many of us would have come across examples. He also exaggerates it, kind of suggesting that God had placed this unreasonable, unkind, unfair limitation on Adam and Eve, almost suggesting that the serpent is actually the one with their best interests at heart. Guys, this, that's, that's, that's honestly how it's going to be for most of you. It's going to be subtle and it's going to be underhand. It's not going to be direct. It's going to come at you in ways that you don't even realize in. Sowing the seed for a creative being to have a right to pass judgment on the creator. That's what he's trying to do. He disguises his true motives and intent to convince them to form their own options and their own worldview about the truth without actually seeking God's revelation over it. Views of most lifestyles, most issues of the day are being shaped by our culture and we often adopt that for a model for living rather than taking God's blueprint, suggesting to Eve, hey, you can become like God. Guys, I'm I'm not going to fully unpick Genesis this morning because I think we could spend weeks there but I do want to just let you know and give you a degree of insight into Satan's tactics because he will try and sow doubt into your mind 
concerning God's goodness. He will try and lead you to believe that God has ulterior motives in what is designed, and what is designed for you will actually deprive you of everything that you might experience otherwise if you followed some of his subtle ways. He will try and convince you that God is not telling you the whole truth. And he will try and convince you and find subtle ways to fall out with each other and to be frustrated, devalued, and undermined. And as we see here, he'll often not approach you directly. He will approach you indirectly in ways that are most likely to win your attention. I don't know if you've ever read Matthew 16 where... Peter opposed Jesus going to Jerusalem. We've got to be on our guard because that's how Satan works. He'll come at you through something you hear, something you see, maybe a a movie, a brilliant YouTube clip, a highly articulate, well-meaning, well-informed person, even an angel disguised. If he came at you as he really is, I think you'd call him out. And you'd call him out straight away. But he's the father of lies. His very being is about deception. I'm not trying to talk him up. I'm not trying to give him airtime. I'm not trying to give him any credit. We just need to know how often and easily we can be disempowered from what we should be and we could be or that we're called to be because he can get a foothold in our lives. I don't know if you realize, but the title Satan is what used 52 times in the Bible, the Hebrew word literally means adversary. It means the one who opposes. The word devil is used 35 times, and it literally means slanderer or accuser. He is constantly a source of false and malicious reports, and he will constantly try and destroy your knowledge of who you are in Jesus. In Matthew 4, verse 3, is the tempter. In Revelation 12, verse 10, he's the accuser. In Revelation 12, verse 9, he's the deceiver. In John 8, 44, he's a liar and a murderer. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, he's a misrepresenter. That's this, all of this is how he works. It's his nature. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. You see, Satan has a scheme, and he works against us, and he works against the church, and he tries to influence value systems and institutions, political, social, and economic systems. And it's not, it's not pantomime. It's not like, oh, no, he doesn't. It's like, actually, he does. Let me just give you a couple of examples so that we can be clear about some of the ways he may resist you. The first one is this. He works in active opposition to the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. There is opposition to share in the gospel. I don't know if you've ever found that. So often you'll find yourself in environments where suddenly there'll be an untimely interruption or there'll be like this moment where somebody goes into daydreaming or suddenly there's, a, there's an intrusive phone call or there's an emergency or suddenly somebody remembers a job or whatever it might be that suddenly needs doing because he stirs up hostility and suspicion in that person's mind. Just as the gospel maybe starts to make sense, suddenly pride or feelings of independence or self-sufficiency will grab the person. Matthew 13, verse 14. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed as he scattered them across the field. Some fell on the footpath and the birds came and ate them away. Suddenly, it's just snatched. 
1 Thessalonians 2.18. We wanted very much to be with you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. So I'm not, I'm not trying to depress you. I just want you to know the reality of what's going on. What we live in is 1 John 4, verse 4. The spirit who lives in you is greater than he who lives in the world. We've got to know that, but you've got to know, actually, you are in a battle and a war. We need to be aware of it and actually activate to step into and live in the spirit. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, night and day, we prayed earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again to fill the gaps in your faith. May God, our Father and Lord Jesus, bring us to you very soon. We need to know we're not helpless, we're not powerless, but we must trust and we must pray and we must seek out God's intervention. But he seeks to silence the witness of the church, Revelation 12, verse 10 to 11. If one of the primary ways that Satan is defeated is by our witness, he is going to go after it with any lengths to try and mute us, to try and dial down your desire for it to happen or to let it happen. And I think we've got to ask ourselves that question, where therefore do I start to become resistant to the spread of the gospel? Oh, let's just make it good deeds. Let's just do good things. We don't need to share the good news. I'm not in any way belittling good news or doing good things. But we have to be people that share the gospel. The second thing is this. He often, not always, please hear that, he often, not always, is the source of sickness. You know, we can never embrace the view that every physical condition is as a result of him but acts 10 verse 38 and you know that god anointed jesus of nazareth with the holy spirit and with power then jesus went out doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for god was with him luke 13 verse 11 he saw a woman who'd been crippled by an evil spirit she'd been bent double for 18 years and was able to stand straight Luke 13, 16, his response to the ruler of the synagogue who objected to him healing someone on the Sabbath. He said this, dear woman, a daughter of Abraham has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? We cannot downplay the link between the two. That would certainly be our story for Steph and I, that he has savagely gone after our health and gone after our children in that way. My hope in the next few weeks would be to start to actually equip us to do the stuff of the kingdom, to be empowered and have the tools and the weapons to do the kingdom bidding and to push back on what would be disempowerment so that we would step into empowerment where maybe he's entrapped and ensnared. The third thing would be this. He can inflict death and provoke paralyzing fear of it. Hebrews 2.14, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could, could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. You, see, you, see, you will see many, many times people will get caught up in a fear of death and dying. So often the enemy is stirring and trying to influence that. The fourth thing, he will plant seed, sorry, he will plant sinful plans and purposes on people. Acts 5 verse 3, then Peter said to Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money for yourself. Jesus taught us to pray that we would not be led into temptation. Guard your hearts and minds and honestly be ruthless because he assaults us. The enemy seeks to lead us 
into sin. Oh, Paul, you're just being a traditionalist. Calm down. Relax. It's not really like that. I, I can't because the enemy is a pig and he tries to take ground. The fifth thing, the devil, sorry, at times he would dwell in a person. John 13, 27, when Jesus had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry up and get on with what you're going to do. Jesus' motive was greed, and I don't think we can split the two, but the enemy wants to take a grip of how we think and how we act. We can't let him. The sixth thing, he set a snare and a trap for people. You'll read it too. Timothy 2.25, gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they've been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. 1 Timothy 3.6, an elder must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. The seventh thing, he tests and tries believers. This happens so often. Luke 22, we see in 22 verse 31 that he sifts Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I've pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. I just want to say this to some of you this morning. Stand firm, stand firm, and stand firm. When you've stood firm, stand firm because he will test you and he will try you. The eighth one, he attacks married believers in their sexual relationship. Actually, he'll attack you in your relationship, but he really will attack you in your sexual relationship. Honestly, I've seen it so many times, and it's heartbreaking. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited period so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterwards... You should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Oh, I'm just working away for a while. It'll be fine. We need the money. I'm just out with my mates regularly. It's just, it's just man time. I need man time. Oh, it's just a couple of flirty texts. It's fine. I'm, I'm just going for a walk with her. What's, what's the problem? Why have you been so religious? Just go with the culture. It's just a quick look. No one will never know, and it doesn't really hurt anyone. Honestly, stop, 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 stop. Your marriage vow was before God until death or until he comes again. Don't let him get a foothold in your life. The ninth thing, he exploits our sinful decisions and intensifies the actions we're already taking. Ephesians 4, 26, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down where you're still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. I don't know if you notice in that verse that the devil isn't credited with creating the anger. We're responsible for that. But he uses stuff like that to gain a foothold, to expand and to intensify our chosen behavior. Don't give him a foothold. Don't let, what's, what's disempowerment going to be? Don't let bitterness, unforgiveness, pride, selfish ambition, greed, lust, addiction, whatever tray of cakes he is trying to present you with, whatever subtle crafty lie, don't take the bait because the thief comes to kill and to destroy. But Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy. And that's the truth we stand on. He that is in you is greater than he that is in you. Jesus comes to destroy the works of the enemy.
that's what it's going to be to step into empowerment. Why don't we stand together and we're going to do exactly that. Let's just take a moment. I realise for some of you, I've hit you cold, and that's not the lightest thing to, to reflect on, but let's just have a moment. You might want to just close your eyes and focus on the Lord. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you. Come, Lord. Come and free us. Come and heal us. I sense for some of you this morning there's a, there's a slight awakening. For some of you, you will need equipping and empowering afresh to sound firm. It's like he's, he's, he's nibbled at the edges of this. You just need, a, you need an anointing of the Holy Spirit to stand firm. For some of you, I feel like you've, you've, you've lived life in the human and you need to do this in the power of the presence. You need a, a fresh fill of the Holy Spirit. For some of you as well, this, this will be like a, not just a reminder, but it will be a slight um, eye-opener to just how savage he is. And, and you, you need a moment of, of coming before him. For some of you, it's been, it's been the home environment. For some of you, it's been marriage. For some of you, it's been the workplace. For some of you, it's been your, your mind and your thinking. One of the key things he often assaults is our, is our thinking. You, you just need the Lord. Some of you, it's been, um, it's, it's been a relentless physical assault on your bodies. Come, Lord. I just also get a sense that there's some people that, you know, even though Paul has been saying again and again this, this talk is about Jesus, about clinging to the freedom that he brings, um, that there is a fear that you're feeling right now or like a heaviness of what, um, of just, yes, yeah, seeing, having your eyes opened, I guess, to what the enemy might be doing. And we just, um, we just love to come alongside you with that. And there's no fear in Jesus. We just want to come alongside you in that and... Yeah. Bless what the Lord is doing, not cling to what, what the enemy is doing. Let's just prepare our hearts to respond to that. I think the, we, we experience the Lord. Some of you physically will just have a sense. It's almost just coming on you like a quickened 
heart rate, a, 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 a heat or a sweatiness in your hands, or like a agitation in your um, in your body. Sometimes the Lord just rests on us in those ways. I just want to encourage you to respond to the Lord. Just as we're in this moment and we've got time and space, whilst people are standing, it's easier to get out. If you want to respond and ask somebody to, to specifically stand alongside you and pray with you, why don't you just come to the front or the side so that the, the guys know to do that. I always want to create space for that, but why don't we do that now? And and as ever, as, as people do, let's not leave them long waiting. If you're in a small group, I'd love you to join some of these guys. We just ask that someone of the same sex they're growing. Let's have an awareness and a sensitivity to what the Lord is doing in the room. He's ministering to many people, not just those that have, have, have come out. It's a phenomenal moment to learn to, to see and acknowledge what the Lord is doing and he's, he's ministering to people. And we want to step into that moment and step alongside him. those of you that are newer in the room, you know, we we learn to be comfortable in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Don't rush this. This is a key part of who we are and what we do. We rest in the presence of God. There's a number of people who would would love somebody to join them and pray with them, not just those that have come forward but you can see it across the room I always take it as a sign if, if somebody's got their eyes shut in a moment like this that they, they would welcome you joining them praying with them encouraging them Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.